In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a life therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash gold. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed, where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend hours looking for candidates with the right skills. Start hiring now at indeed.com Peter. Offer good for a limited time. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Friday was the last trading day of the month. It was also the last trading day of the quarter. But first, let's look at the damage in September, because it really was a September that very few investors are going to want to remember. This was the worst monthly drop since March of 2020. And remember, March of 2020 was when everything collapsed based on COVID. That was the beginning of the COVID collapse in the stock market, March of 2020. And this is the worst month since then, except we didn't have anything like COVID. Nothing happened other than the fact that the Fed continued to raise interest rates and the market finally started to care about what that portends. And we got this big drop. But as far as September's go, to find a September that was worse than September 2022, you got to go all the way back to September 2008. And what was happening in September 2008? The 2008 financial crisis, that's when it began. That's when the market imploded. So we haven't had a September this week 
other than the September that began the 2008 financial crisis. And our financial crisis hasn't even started yet. We're still going to have a financial crisis. It just hasn't started yet. And so if the market is this bad before the financial crisis, imagine how much worse it's going to be during the financial crisis, which is a reason that the Fed might pivot before we have this financial crisis because they may try to avoid it. And of course, most investors still don't even realize how close we are to a financial crisis, yet they're still selling stocks. So imagine the panic that would ensue if investors actually realized that we are on the precipice of not only another financial crisis, but a much bigger financial crisis than the one we had in 2008. Also, we ended the quarter on Friday, and it was the third consecutive down quarter for the markets. For the S&P and the NASDAQ, this is the first time we've had three down quarters since 2009. That was the bottom of the bear market that resulted from the 2008 financial crisis. And the last time the Dow had three consecutive down quarters was in 2015. And by the way, we are on track right now to have the worst year in the stock market since 2008. So a worse year than 2020 when we had COVID. You have to go back to a financial crisis. And it could be even worse because the fourth quarter could potentially be the weakest quarter of all. As bad as the third quarter was, the fourth quarter could be worse. The only caveat in that statement is that it could be so bad early in the quarter that the Fed may actually pivot during the quarter, and that may save it. We could get a bear market rally if we get a Fed pivot. But again, it's not going to end the bear market because people have no idea how much worse things are going to get as a result of the pivot because ultimately the pivot is going to knock the legs out from under the bond market even if it gets a knee-jerk rally and it's going to crash the dollar. So if you're hoping for a pivot and you're in the U.S. stock market, be careful what you wish for because you will get it. But one of the most noteworthy things about the quarter is not just how much the markets declined on the quarter, and I'm going to get into those declines in a minute, but the intra-quarter volatility, because we had a huge bear market rally during the quarter, and probably most people thought that we were going to end the quarterly losing streak at two, but the market imploded following putting it its high in August. And if you look at how much the index has dropped by the end of September from their August high, the Dow Jones dropped 16.2%. The S&P dropped 17.1%. The Russell 2000 dropped 18%. And the NASDAQ dropped a full 20%. In other words, an entire bear market took place in the NASDAQ within the quarter. In fact, not just the entire quarter, from mid-August to the end of September, you had a 20% drop. But not only did we finish the quarter in the red, it was a down month, it was a down week. In fact, it was a down day. Friday, the Dow Jones dropped better than 500 points, closing on the lows of the day. Same thing with all the other indexes. The Dow Jones closed at 28,715, so not just below 20,000, but below 19,000. And this is the first month where the Dow has closed below 20,000 since November of 2020. 
These big Friday drops are becoming a pattern because pretty much every time I record a podcast on a Saturday, I'm talking about the possibility of another Black Monday because I remember that Black Monday in 1987 really got started with a big drop on Friday that carried over into an even bigger drop on Monday. So that's always in the back of my mind that I bring it to the front of my mind when I'm doing these podcasts. Of course, every time I've warned about the potential for a Black Monday, we haven't had one. We haven't had a spectacular one-day crash like we had in 1987. This is more drawn out, but it's actually going to be even more damaging to the markets because the 1987 crash was basically a one-day event, and then we had a new bull market. This is not a one-day event. This is going to be Chinese water torture for investors. But maybe one reason why this Black Monday warning may be a little bit more ominous is because when the stock market resumes trading this Monday, it will be October. And of course, some of the biggest stock market crashes happened in October, including Black Monday, which was a Monday in October in 1987. But also we had a big stock market crash during the panic of 1907. And of course, the granddaddy of all, the 1929 stock market crash that ultimately ushered in the Great Depression, that crash also happened in October. So Monday is going to be the first chance we get now to trade in the month of October, but it's also following a very weak Friday where the markets are closing on their lows with no support and no positive news to look forward to, the market really could fall through a trap door on Monday morning unless the Federal Reserve chickens out the way the Bank of England already has. Before I go over the numbers on the markets during the week, month, and quarter, though, I want to talk about some of the standout stocks from Friday and Thursday. First of all, Yesterday, one of the big losers was Nike, and that really helped set the tone for the market. Nike reported its earnings after the bell on Thursday, so the market didn't react to it until Friday. But Nike's numbers very disappointing. The stock dropped 12.8% on Friday alone. It's now down 54% from its highs. But what's significant about this, and it also reminds me of what Apple said, and Apple also had a pretty bad week, and I'll get to that. But Nike talked about a big buildup in inventory. Well, why is there a buildup in inventory? Because people can't afford to buy Nike sneakers because they don't have any money. They're spending all their money on other things, and so they can't buy a new pair of Nikes. They're making do with the Nike they already have. And that's what's going to happen throughout the economy. It's going to be the making do economy. People are going to make do with what they've got. They're not going to upgrade to the iPhone 14. They're not going to buy a new pair of Nike high tops. They're just going to stay with what they've got. They're going to make do. They're going to hunker down. Americans are going to have to try their best to get by. And that's bad news for a lot of companies that were used to Americans going on shopping sprees, not really caring, having plenty of home equity or plenty of credit or income and just buying whatever they wanted. Well, those days are gone. Americans are having to tighten their belts. And that is a big change for an economy that's based on the profligacy of American consumers. Also on Friday, Carnival Cruise down 23% on the day. A lot of people thought that these cruise lines were the good reopening trades from the COVID era. Well, if you bet on Carnival, you're sinking like the Titanic. In fact, Carnival Cruise Lines is now down 74% 
from its 52-week high. Of course, if you go back to the pre-COVID high, the stock is down 90%. We also got some big debacles on Thursday, one in particular, CarMax having trouble selling cars. Obviously, Americans don't have the money for cars. Stock was down 25% on Thursday, 58% now from its highs. Another big mover, if anybody even cared on Thursday, was Peloton, which dropped 15%. I don't know how many times Peloton can report bad earnings. Peloton is now down 96% from its record high, which happened during the COVID period. Peloton was probably the darling of the stay-at-home trades. After all, people couldn't go to the gym, so they had to work out at home, and so they were going to all buy Peloton bikes, and investors bid it up as if COVID would never end and people would never go back to the gym. In fact, I talked about it during COVID, how ridiculous this was, how this stock was going to implode, because all those Peloton bikes were going to end up being clothes racks in people's bedrooms. Rather than using those bikes, they were just going to throw their dirty clothes on top of them, and the whole craze was going to end. This was a complete fad, but investors didn't care. They were just piling in to anything that had momentum. Rapid growth for your business doesn't have to come with growing pains. When you have ambitious hiring goals, you need a partner to help you get there. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Why spend countless hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed? Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like instant match assessments and virtual interviews. Hate waiting? Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job descriptions the moment they sponsor a job. With virtual interviews, Indeed saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent all in one place. Indeed makes it easy to connect with your applicants. No need to install anything extra. Indeed's virtual interview tools work right from your browser. And after using Indeed's virtual interviews, most employers said it saved them days of hiring time, according to Indeed's U.S. data. So join the over 3 million businesses worldwide already using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why when you sponsor a job, you only pay for quality applications from resumes in their database matching your job description. Visit Indeed.com slash Peter to start hiring right now. Just go to Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. One more stock I want to highlight, though, I've never really talked about on this podcast, Miller Knoll. This company makes furniture. They're very well known for their office chairs, in particular, the Herman Miller chair. I've got several of those chairs. I think they're great chairs. In fact, I have a lot of other Knoll products in my house. So I'm a fan of the company. I think they have excellent products. As a matter of fact, I'm sitting on a Knoll chair right now. I have several of them in my home office where I record this podcast. The problem isn't the products. The problem is the consumer. The consumer is broke. And one of the reasons there was a big rally in this stock is a lot of people started to furnish their home offices. And so they needed those Herman Miller chairs. And that's why this was another big COVID stock. In fact, off the COVID lows, the stock tripled in price. But it crashed 15% on Thursday following its earnings, another 8% on Friday. So the stock is now down 64% 
from its 52-week high. And if it falls another 8% from here, it's going to take out its March 2020 COVID low. So very close to making a complete round trip from the low. And in fact, there's probably a lot of other stocks that are going to finish that round trip, but many of them aren't going to stop falling at the March 2020 COVID lows. They're going to make new lows and fall further because a lot of these stocks were still overpriced at their COVID lows, and they're even more overpriced now. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But I want to take a little time and go over exactly what's been happening with the stock market averages just to put everything here in perspective. So on the week, the Dow Jones lost 3% of its value. On the month of September, down 8.8%. For the quarter, 6.7%. And year to date, the Dow Jones is now down 21% officially in bear market territory. In fact, it's now down 22% from its all-time record high. The S&P 500 down 2.9% on the week, 9.4% for the month of September, and 5.3% 
for the third quarter. But year-to-date, the S&P 500 now down 25%, 26% below its record high, also set in January. The Nasdaq Composite down 3% on the week, 10.7% on the month, 4.6% for the quarter. But the Nasdaq is now down 33% year-to-date and 35% below its record high from January. So solidly in bear market territory there. Russell 2000, the only major index not to make a new low on Friday, down 0.9% on the week, 10% though on the month, 2.5% on the quarter, 26% decline year to date. And that index is 32% below its all-time record high. Now, I was surprised that the ARK Innovation Fund did not make a new low this week. In fact, it was only down 0.25%. Maybe we're going to have to wait till next week to see a new low on that fund, but it was down 10% on the month, 5.4% for the quarter, 60% year to date, and it's down 76% from its record highs. Finally, I heard some people on CNBC speaking critically about Kathy Wood. I hadn't really Saw that before. They were starting to question her. Maybe she's not as great as everybody thinks. And to me, this was just pure hypocrisy because they treated her like the Messiah. They rolled out the red carpet. They had her on all the time. And they let her go on and on and on about how great her fund was and how low the risk was and how it was less risky than the S&P 500 and how her investors were going to make five times their money. All kinds of crazy stuff all sorts of promises, and CNBC had no problem giving her a platform, letting her say whatever she wanted to pump up her stocks and talk her book, and nobody was ever critical. And now, after the air comes out of the bubble and you can see how bad her advice was, now they finally want to speak critically, talk about closing the barn doors after the horses are gone. You can't even see the horses anymore, and CNBC wants to close this door. I was speaking very critically about Kathy Wood when her funds were making all-time highs. I was saying at the time how overrated she was. I reminded people of the old adage, don't confuse brains with a bull market. There was nothing smart about what Kathy Wood was doing. It was all a bull market. And it's even more important not to confuse brains with a bubble. And that's exactly what people did with respect to Kathy Wood. Now, every time I talk about the ARK Innovation Fund, I also talk about the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust because of the high correlation. But recently, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust has been more correlated with the S&P, I think, than ARK, although year to date, it certainly trades more like ARK. But the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust was actually up 2% on the week although it was down 9% on the month, 5.4% on the quarter, and a whopping 67% year-to-date. From its record high, though, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is now down 80%. So anybody who bought that as a store of value, as a safe haven, anybody who dropped gold 
and bought Grayscale Bitcoin Trust instead, well, they have lost a tremendous amount of money. And that's another fund that I think still has a long way to drop. In fact, not only do I think the ARK fund will hit a new 52-week low probably next week, but I think the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust will do the same thing. I think Bitcoin is getting ready for a big drop. It's been hanging in there north of 19,000. It hasn't really broken down yet. Of course, that's creating a lot of false optimism in the Bitcoin community because Bitcoin hasn't fallen. Well, that's what bear markets do. They trap you in there. They give investors a lot of false hope before they yank that hope away and the bottom drops out of the market. And I think that is going to happen for Bitcoin and all the other cryptos. And maybe it will happen as soon as next week. But it's not just cryptocurrency speculators that are going to see their wealth evaporate. A lot of Americans who have been speculating in the stock market are also going to see their wealth vanish. That's what's going to be particularly problematic about the economy going forward is because not only do you have the reverse wealth effect where people are seeing their net worths eviscerated as the stock market collapses and also soon as the housing market rolls over, but the cost of living is going up. So everything people need to buy is more expensive. So they have to give up on the things they want to buy, like a new pair of Nikes or a new iPhone, but everything they own is losing value. So their net worths are going down as the cost of living is going up. It is a double whammy. We're going to have a reverse wealth effect. And the irony, of course, is that the Federal Reserve deliberately built this phony recovery on the foundation of phony wealth. They did quantitative easing specifically to pump up stock market prices, to pump up real estate prices. Well, now that they're being forced to reverse the process because the inflation genie they let out of the bottle is doing so much damage, now they have to deflate those bubbles. And now the wealth effect is going to work in reverse as Americans are going to watch their wealth collapse. They're going to spend a lot less because the idea that the Fed has was that if people thought they were wealthier, they'd spend more money. Well, when they realize just how broke they are, they're going to have to spend less money. But of course, that was the wrong thing for the Fed to do. Why fool Americans into thinking they had more wealth than they did so they would spend money that they shouldn't? It would have been better if Americans acted more prudently and saved money. But the Fed didn't want anybody saving. They wanted people spending. So they tricked them into believing they were rich because they owned overpriced stocks. So instead of saving, they spent. But all of that undermined the economy because the economy needed savings because we needed more capital investment. We needed to be more productive. We needed to be less reliant on imports. But because of what the Fed did, the economy got real screwed up. The Fed sowed the winds of this destruction. And now the American public is going to reap the whirlwind. But let me just go over some of the other stocks, too, in particular, that a lot of Americans were fooled into buying and that Americans own in great numbers. Some of these widely held stocks that are the bedrocks of most Americans' portfolios are just getting killed, and they have a long way to go. The FANG stocks, that anachronism came about because these were not just the best performing stocks. They were the stocks that everybody owned. Well, now all the Americans who own them have got a real toothache. Let's take a look at FANG. The F is Facebook, which is now, of course, meta, so it's not even really an F. But Facebook is now down 62%. Amazon, down 40%. Netflix, the worst FANG stock of them all, down 67%. The one that's held up the best is Google, but that made a 52-week low on Friday. It's down 37%. 
Americans are getting bit hard by these FANG stocks. And there's one more stock that sometimes is considered FANG, the second A, that's Apple. Even Apple now is proven to be rotten. It was down 8% on the week, by the way, a pretty bad week for Apple. And it's now down 25% from its highs. So if you were hiding out an Apple, I think you found the worm. And now Apple is also in a bear market. But as these stocks and so many Americans go down and the wealth evaporates, that's another reason that Americans are going to have to stop spending. And of course, when the real estate market implodes as a result of rising interest rates, which will happen, that's going to create an even bigger reverse wealth effect. But it's not just these FANG stocks. The meme stocks, a lot of the millennials got caught up in the meme mania, and now they're getting wiped out. GameStop, which is really the poster boy for the meme stocks because it put the meme in stock, GameStop is now down 80%. AMC, another meme favorite, is down 85%. BlackBerry is down 84%. Bed Bath & Beyond is down 89%. Robinhood, the trading app where a lot of these millennials were trading the meme stocks itself became a meme stock, and now it's down 88%. So all these stocks are getting clobbered. But what about the stocks related to Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and the blockchain? Probably the bellwether stock in that space is Coinbase. Well, the weather is not good for Coinbase investors. The stock is down 83% from its high. What about Block Inc.? That used to be Square, but they changed the name of the company to Block Inc. to tether themselves to the blockchain. Well, it hasn't worked out well for shareholders. The stock is down 80%. MicroStrategies, Michael Saylor's company, yeah, the stock is off the lows, but it's still down 76% from its highs. Galaxy Digital, that's Mike Novogratz's company, that stock is down 87% from its highs. Two things that Mike Novogratz and Michael Saylor have in common, other than their first names and the fact that they love Bitcoin, is that neither one of them will debate me, because a lot of people have tried to set up debates between me and those two guys, and they've both chickened out. Also, take a look at BitFarm. That stock is down 89%. Hive, down 87%. So people are getting killed in these stocks. But the reality is they've still got a long way to go because a lot of these crypto-related stocks are not just going down. They're going down for the count because they're going to go bankrupt. In fact, there are a lot of household names that are going to go bankrupt. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the stocks will go out of business. It just means the investors are going to lose all their money and the creditors are going to own the companies. Now, in contrast to the overall stock market, which is showing no signs of life, the gold and silver mining stocks are finally showing some signs that they may be coming back from the dead. As I mentioned on my last podcast, I thought we had a very significant day where we had an outside reversal day in gold and the gold stocks. And more importantly, we had a real pivotal moment with the Bank of England caving and going back to QE after first having abandoned it. So all their tough talk about fighting inflation was just talk. Well, now I think the markets are starting to be suspicious of all the central banks including the Federal Reserve. And so that is what caused the reversal in gold and gold mining stocks. And that reversal continued on Thursday and Friday. And in fact, the GDX was actually up 7.5% on the week. It made a new 52-week low intra-week, 
but then it closed up 7.5% on the week. And for the month, the GDX was also up 1.3%. That's not bad, considering how much the index had gone down. Now, for the quarter, the GDX is still down 12%, and year-to-date, we're down 25%. So still in a bear market, but maybe close to the end, and I think we've seen the end. As a matter of fact, I mentioned on this podcast that I was adding to my personal gold stock portfolio during that decline, and following this week's rally, now even my highest buy is in the black. When they're giving stocks away, don't look that gift horse in the mouth. Just take whatever the market gives you. And I think they were really giving away a lot of value near the lows in these mining stocks. The GDX is still down 42% from its 52-week high. Now, looking at the GDXJ, it had an even better week, up 9%, after also making a new 52-week low on the week. But on the month, the GDXJ was still down. It was down a half of 1%, down 8% on the quarter, so a little bit better than the GDX. But year-to-date, the GDXJ down 30%, and it saw 43% from its highs. I think that we've seen the lows in these mining stocks where there's a good chance that we have. And in fact, there's a divergence because these gold stocks really were stronger than the metal itself, especially on the month, because gold was down 2.9%, during the month of September, yet the GDX was up 1.3% during the month of September. That's typically the type of divergence that marks a bottom. You see strength in the mining stocks anticipating strength in the metals. And in fact, gold itself was positive on the week, up 1.1%. So bucking the trend in the stock market, although it was down 8.2% for the quarter and 9.5% on the year, but from its high price, gold is still down 20%. So officially in a bear market, but off the lows by 2.4%. Now, a much bigger move from the lows in these gold stocks, the GDX closed the week 12% above its intra-week low, and the GDXJ closed 14.2% above it's intra-week new 52-week low. Now, I think there's a good chance that both of these indexes will be up better than 20% off those lows by next week, in which case they'll be in a brand new bull market. But this bull market, I think, in these mining stocks has a long, long way to go because we are barely getting started. Silver also had a positive week, up 0.8 tenths of 1%. But on the month, silver did even better, up 5.5%. And again, gold was down 2.9%. That is another positive divergence that you see at precious metals lows when silver, which went down more than gold during the bear market, starts to go up more than gold during a bull market. We saw the divergence where gold went down on the month, but silver snapped back and was up. Five and a half percent. That is a very positive divergence and is bullish for the precious metals because it's indicative that the selling has washed out and a new bull market has begun. In fact, on the quarter, even though silver was down 7%, it was still down less than gold's 8.2%. So that is a positive divergence because if you look at the year-to-date decline, it's 23% versus 9.5% for gold. 
and silver is 30% off its 52-week high in comparison to gold being 20% off. But gold's 52-week high is also its record high. If you want to look at the record high for silver, that was set back in 2011. And the price of silver is still 64% below a record that it set 11 years ago. Think about that. Think about all the inflation that we've had in the last 11 years, yet the price of silver has gone down. Silver is an incredible buy. I think between the two precious metals, the one that has the most upside potential is silver. And I still recommend that people continue to buy both gold and silver as a safe haven, as a store of value. If you don't already have gold and silver, or even if you do and you want to buy more, make sure to call my representatives at shipgold.com and buy some gold and silver. I think we've seen the lows. And if we haven't, we're not far off. But I would rather buy now and assume the lows are in then wait for a lower low, then be stuck on the sidelines and watch the gold and silver train leave the station and not be aboard. The main reason, of course, that gold has been weak is that the dollar has been so strong, not in purchasing power terms, where obviously inflation is eroding away its value, but on foreign exchange terms where the dollar is losing less value than other currencies. So on a relative basis, it's strengthening against other currencies, even as it's weakening against real goods and services that Americans are buying. The dollar index was actually down, though, on the week, nine-tenths of 1%, because the dollar had the same type of outside day reversal that gold did. Instead of gold formed the bottom and the dollar formed the top, and as a result, there is a good chance once again that the dollar index has seen its highs, and the next thing it's going to see is its lows, but those lows are very, very far down. But on the month, the dollar index was up 3.2%. For the quarter, the dollar index rose 7.5%, and year to date, the U.S. dollar index is up 17%. This is a huge up year for the dollar. The question is, how much of the dollar's gains is it going to hold on to in the fourth quarter? Because if the Fed pivots during the fourth quarter, and there's a good chance it might to save the markets and the economy, then I think the dollar will give up all of its year-to-date gains, closing lower on the year, marking a huge yearly reversal on the dollar chart and marking the beginning of a new long-term dollar bear market. And of course, if we have a long-term bear market in the U.S. dollar, we will also have a long-term bull market in gold and silver. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, one of the main reasons that the U.S. dollar has been strengthening is the rise in interest rates. The yield on a two-year U.S. Treasury is up from 1.28% at the end of last year to 4.24% at the end of the third quarter. And in fact, we are right now on pace for the biggest increase in two-year Treasury yields in history. Five-year Treasuries also started the year at 1.28%. And they're at 4.04%. The yield on 10-year treasuries has gone from 1.34% at the end of last year to 3.8% at the end of Q3. And the yield on the 30-year U.S. Treasury 
has risen the least, up from 1.9 to 3.77. But ultimately, it's the 30-year yields that are going to rise the most because there you have 30 years of inflation eroding away your purchasing power. The main reason that we haven't seen a bigger increase in longer-term interest rates is because investors still have confidence that the Fed is going to be able to rein in inflation. Well, when that confidence is lost, it's the long end that's going to feel the pain the most, and you're going to see an even bigger rise in interest rates there. In fact, if we do get a crack on the long end of the bond market during the fourth quarter of this year, that would be a catalyst for the Fed to pivot, just like what happened in the UK when their bonds were crashing and it threatened a financial crisis in the pension system, the Bank of England cried uncle and went right back to quantitative easing. So they cast aside the inflation fight and turned tail and ran. The minute inflation started to fight back. By the way, one of my listeners pointed out when I spoke about the British pensions that I was a little bit too hard on the pension funds themselves for their failure to either cut benefits, or increase the contributions. My listener pointed out that in many cases, they can't do that because of British labor laws. Because of these laws, they can't cut pension benefits or they can't increase the contribution rates. So as a result, they had no choice but to take on leverage to maintain their regulatory commitment. So once again, it's not the free market that is acting recklessly. Maybe if these pension fund administrators weren't bound by government laws, they could have done the right thing. But government laws prevented them from doing the right thing. And so they did the wrong thing and they speculated on leverage. But ironically, they were only able to do the wrong thing and lever up because the Bank of England also did the wrong thing by keeping short-term interest rates so low. That's what enabled them to get so levered up. So you have two government wrongs, and they certainly don't make a market right. You have the government telling the pension funds that they can't increase the mandatory contributions and they can't cut benefits. And then you have the Bank of England artificially suppressing interest rates to encourage the pension fund managers to use speculation and leverage to get around other laws enacted by the British government. So the government makes two mistakes and it creates a financial crisis. And now they're trying to prevent the financial crisis by making yet another government's mistake. But none of this is a function of the free market. The free market wouldn't make any of these mistakes absent government intervention. I want to finish up today's podcast talking about a pair of hurricanes. First, Hurricane Fiona, which delivered a glancing blow here in Puerto Rico. And then Hurricane Ian, which delivered a direct hit to Florida's Gulf Coast. Fiona was a much weaker storm, Category 1 hurricane. In fact, it had just been upgraded from a tropical storm when it hit the southwest coast of Puerto Rico. Not much damage up north where I live. We didn't get much wind. We did get a lot of rain, but not that much flooding. The south side of the island got some more wind, but in particular, a lot more rain and a lot more flooding. There was a lot of reports about the power outages, and they were widespread. In fact, I was without power at my house for maybe eight or nine days. I was one of the last in my neighborhood to get power back. Of course, I wasn't in the dark. I have my own generator, but I had to generate my own power. I didn't have the power supplied by the grid. But the real problem here in Puerto Rico wasn't the storm. It was the infrastructure. It is the grid. It is the government. That is the problem. If we had better power infrastructure, 
the whole island wouldn't have gone dark. 100% of Puerto Rico was without power as a result of a Category 1 storm that didn't even deliver a direct hit to the island. In fact, the very same hurricane strengthened to a Category 2 and then delivered a direct hit on the Dominican Republic. It went right through the island. Now, maybe it wasn't the most populous part of the island, but it went right through it. And the Dominican Republic isn't exactly a very rich country, but only 7% of the people lost power there. Puerto Rico is in hurricane zone. It's possible we could get hit by hurricanes every single year, especially now that it doesn't matter how weak the hurricane is or whether it hits us directly or not, we're still going to have a big power problem. And a lot of people want to blame it on the private company, Luma, that now is the power company. It's not Luma's fault. Luma just has a service contract. They don't own any of the infrastructure. The Puerto Rico government built it and they own it. And they have done a horrible job in maintaining it. What we really need is true privatization. They have to sell off every aspect of that power grid to private companies in a real auction, not some behind the scenes deal making where the outcome is rigged. They need a real privatization and they need to deregulate. They need competition. The private sector needs to be completely in charge of power in Puerto Rico because the government has done such a horrible job. So when people are talking about Puerto Ricans need relief from the hurricane, they don't need relief from the hurricane. They need relief from government. And it's not just the Puerto Rican government they need relief from, it's the U.S. government. Because while so many Puerto Ricans, myself included, were without power and had to make power on their own with generators, there was a shortage of diesel fuel because a lot of the generators need diesel. And so we were running out of diesel. The price of diesel doubled. People were waiting on long lines to get diesel. In the meantime, there was a huge ship right off of Puerto Rico full of diesel that wanted to dock and bring badly needed diesel to the people of Puerto Rico. But because of the Jones Act, it couldn't do that. And the U.S. government, again, did not grant that ship captain a waiver. So even though the Puerto Rican people desperately needed diesel, President Biden refused to waive the Jones Act. He cared more about the political contributions of the small group of people that benefit from ripping the American public off with the Jones Act than they actually cared about the people of Puerto Rico because what they should have done is waive that Jones Act and let that ship land. Of course, what they should do is repeal the Jones Act, especially if Biden is trying to find ways to deliver relief from inflation. One way to bring transportation costs down, which means the cost of all goods that have to be transported, is by repealing forever the Jones Act. But getting back to the natural disasters, the hurricane that hit Florida was much stronger than the one that hit Puerto Rico. Ian was a Category 4, but moving from man-made to natural disasters, the hurricane that hit Florida was far stronger than the one that hit Puerto Rico. Ian was a Category 4 that delivered a direct blow to Florida's Gulf Coast. Look at some of those photographs from Fort Myers. It looks like an atomic bomb went off. That is some real destruction. But of course, whenever we have these natural disasters, you always have these Keynesian economists talking about the silver lining to this cloud. And that's all the jobs that are going to be created, how GDP is going to benefit, because now everything that was destroyed has to be rebuilt. This is a classic example of the broken window fallacy, brilliantly exposed by the French economist Frederick Bastiat. The fallacy of the broken window is that if somebody throws a brick through a window, now the person who owns the window has to pay to get the window fixed. 
And so now the guy that fixes the window, he gets to make money. He gets paid to fix that window. So now he has more money. And so he takes the money he earned fixing the window, and then he spends that money someplace else. And then that person gets the money and spends it someplace else. And so there's this big multiplier effect. And it was all started by smashing a window. And so the idea is why wait for a window to break by accident? Just start go smashing windows and you're going to create an economic boom. Well, what Bastiat pointed out is what is not seen. Yes, you can see the guy that fixes the window and you can see him get paid and you can see what he does with the money. But what you don't see is what the owner of the window would have done with that money if he didn't use it to buy a new window. Because the window owner could have taken that money and instead of fixing a window, he could have spent it on something else. And now that person could have taken that money and spent it on something else. So there is no extra economic activity. There is no multiplier. You're just changing where the money is flowing. It's the guy that fixes the window that gets to spend all the money and start to chain instead of the guy that owned the window. Now he's spending his money fixing a window instead of spending it on something else. But the bottom line is a window was broken. And now you have to spend money to replace something that you already had. So that is a net loss. Having to replace something that you already had is a waste. You probably need to have a PhD in economics like Paul Krugman to be dumb enough to believe that you're better off by being worse off, that you make yourself richer by destroying what you already have, so you have to spend money to replace it. It's better if you can keep what you had and then buy something else. So the guy who owned the window, the fact that he had to give up something in order to pay to fix the window that he already had, he's worse off, so society is worse off. And the same thing is going to happen because of these hurricanes. The fact that we have to spend so much money rebuilding what hurricanes destroyed does not make us richer. We would have all been better off had nothing been destroyed. And then instead of having to use our resources to replace what we lost, we could have used those resources to build something that we never had. But of course, the real effect of this hurricane is going to be prices. The inflation problem is going to get a whole lot worse because of the devastation in Florida, because a lot of money is going to have to be spent now on raw materials, which is going to push up those prices. In fact, a lot of insurance companies are going to have to sell bonds, they're going to have to sell stocks, and they're going to have to pay claims. And what are the homeowners going to do when they get their insurance money? They're going to have to use it to rebuild what the hurricanes or the floods destroyed. So you have all this new spending. Money has to come out of savings, and it goes into spending and consumption, and it further bids up prices. This is very inflationary. It diminishes the supply of goods because now goods are going to be used to rebuild what we already had, but we have all this extra demand. People have to go out and buy stuff that they weren't going to buy because they already had it, but now they've lost it and they have to buy it again. So you get more demand, you get less supply. And of course, the government is going to respond by printing even more money because now everybody who's been victimized from Puerto Rico to Florida Everybody who suffered some type of loss that was not their fault, it was Mother Nature, now the U.S. government feels obligated to bail everybody out. They want to show how much they care by spending other people's money. And so that means bigger budget deficits, which, of course, ultimately mean more money printing to monetize them. So this is just going to make a bad inflation problem that much worse. And when it comes to all the government disaster relief 
as much as I sympathize with people who find themselves in circumstances where they have great losses due to acts of God, it is not up to the federal government to provide that relief. To the extent that relief comes from governments, it should come from the state governments in which the relief is needed. And to the extent that people get additional relief beyond their own state, it should come from private charity. It should never come from the federal government. Of course, now we have disaster relief every year. It's dishonest the way they don't even count this stuff on budget. All of the money spent on disaster relief is not even officially scored when they calculate the budget deficits every year because it's all off budget because they claim, well, it's a disaster. It's an emergency spending. Yes, but if it recurs every year, we know every year there's going to be a hurricane. There's going to be an earthquake. There's going to be a drought. There's going to be a flood. There's going to be fires. Something's going to go wrong somewhere. So the government should at least be honest and build it into the budget. Although, why should we expect the government to be honest about that when they're dishonest about everything else? But once upon a time, presidents of the United States had a lot more respect for the Constitution and their oath of office than just trying to be popular and hand out bailout money. One of my favorite presidents, Grover Cleveland, who actually was a Democrat and was the only U.S. president to serve two non-consecutive terms. Now, I think Donald Trump is hoping that he could be the second president to serve two non-consecutive terms. But as of now, Grover Cleveland is the only man to do it. And I wish Donald Trump was a Grover Cleveland. Unfortunately, he doesn't have anywhere near the integrity of Grover Cleveland. If ever we could use a president Grover Cleveland, it's right now. But one of the most famous things that Grover Cleveland did was veto the Texas seed bill in 1887 that appropriated $10,000 for farmers that had been hurt by a drought. And it was a worthy cause. It was a huge drought. And the farmers obviously uh, could use some relief. And Congress appropriated the money and passed the bill. And when it got to Grover Cleveland's desk, he vetoed it. Now, why did he veto it? Was he a heartless man? Did he not care about the plight of the farmers? No, he cared. In fact, he donated money himself to the farmers. He refused to spend government money on disaster relief, but he was willing to spend his own money. And in fact, after the bill was vetoed, private charities raised more money for disaster relief than the $10,000 bill that Grover Cleveland vetoed. But I want to finish up this podcast by reading a quote from one of America's greatest presidents and one of the last presidents to actually honor his oath of office who understood and defended the United States Constitution. After vetoing the Texas seed bill, President Cleveland said, and I quote, I can find no warrant for such an appropriation in the Constitution. And I do not believe that the power and duty of the general government ought to be extended to the relief of individual suffering, which is in no manner properly related to the public service or benefit. A prevalent tendency to disregard the limited mission of this power and duty should, I think, be steadfastly resisted to the end that the lesson should be constantly enforced that, though the people support the government, the government should not support the people.